Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It's Wednesday night, and that means it is time for Friends and Fiction. Let's get rolling because we have four amazing guests tonight and a lot to celebrate. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. And I'm Mary Kay. Is- <laughs> Sorry. I'm just so excited to say, and this is Friends and Fiction for New York Times bestselling <laughs> authors. Endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, I, and librarians. I, I feel more. like we should we should look into like how many times we actually screw up our like our saying our own names at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's like 50% of the time. Like we mess up the easiest part like it, it it really is and like we mess up our names i think more than anything else like for sure we need to have like a blooper reel of us saying our names wrong yes. or out of order or it's like it's really not that hard but anyway fortunately we say other people's names okay so tonight we have a Miranda and Mary Huddleston and Asher Paul will be joining us for the after show. And you know, since the beginning, over three years ago, in that strange time in 2020, we have been here for you since then to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. And one way that you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And speaking of simply amazing books, don't forget that we have the Friends and Fiction official book club page. It is with Brenda and Lisa on their own foot Facebook page. On July 17th, Kristen Harmel, our Kristen Harmel, that Kristen Armel, the one whose book, The Paris Daughter, just hit number nine <laughs> on the New York Times list, will be with them to discuss, guess what? The Paris Daughter. <laughs> Lucky y'all. I can't wait. That's going to be great. Okay, so now without further ado, let's welcome Annabelle Monahan. Annabelle's debut adult novel, Nora Goes Off Script, was released last summer. Before that, Annabelle wrote fiction for young adults and a column for not-so-young adults. Annabelle grew up in Los Angeles and she attended Duke University where she studied English. She has an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, which is a super slacker business school and previously worked as an investment banker. She also, in her spare time, I guess, used to teach novel writing at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. Annabelle now lives in the suburbs of New York City with her family. Her new novel, which I just adored, same time next summer was just released earlier this month on June 6th. Alan, can you? I was going to say, Annabelle, can you bring Alan on? I'm really, I'm really <laughs> getting on a lot. <laughs> so happy to be here. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Annabelle, we love to do a quick warm up chat with our guests before we dive into our real questions. And I love how the back of this book has beach rules, including do take long walks on the sand, do put an umbrella in every cocktail, and do not run into your first love. <laughs> yes. So, ladies, since this is my favorite season, have I mentioned that I love summer on here? But I'm not sure if I talked about or that twice. Much, do you? We, we didn't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I want to know what your rules for summer are. So, Patty. I would say I was thinking back when when I knew this was going to be the question. I was thinking back to childhood summers. And even then, this was true. My rule is always, always make sure you have a book in your beach bag. 
How about you, MKA? My rule is to follow the sun. But now, if you can see, I have very fair skin. When I grew up in Florida, and there's a lot of sun damage. So now my rule for summer is follow the sun, but in a hat and sunscreen and, um, you know, a lot of extra things. Umbrellas. Umbrellas. Good plan. Good plan. Mine is to just bring plenty of water, right? But also plenty of wine, because why not? And um, snacks for your kid, because there is nothing worse than being on the beach with a hungry seven-year-old. <laughs> True. 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 Annabelle, what about you? Do you have any personal beyond what is stated in your book? Any other personal beach rules? My new rule is to release a book every summer. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to, that's something right. I work on. Um, but my personal rule is I try, my, my children are a little bit older now, so it's easier, but I spend most of the winter trying to figure out where my kids are going to be so that I can have a summer. Uh, so I'm not driving them around all mm -hmm. summer. So I'm, does everyone have a job? Does everyone have some place to go during the day <laughs> so that I don't miss the summer? Because I sometimes feel like as a mom, I'm just, yes. it's just like more work during the summer. 100%. Yes. I totally get that. There's like a lot of carpooling around. I am, I feel like I just have so many fewer roles during the summer. I don't know what it is. It's like my brain switches into like kid mode and I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. we had cheeseburgers for lunch and dinner. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> now, if that was February, I would be like, we are that, no, put that back. Or like <laughs> everyone's ordering ice cream every day. It's, that's great. Yes. <laughs> why not? I don't know what it is. It's very S'mores bizarre. for lunch. Why not? Uh, it's not a problem. Well, Annabelle, we want to dive into talking about this great book. And I am going to start. Now, you know, people always assume that beach books, like the ones some of us write, are all fizz and no depth. But Same Time Next Summer has such emotional depth. I mean, Sam and Wyatt have both survived a shared family trauma, and they have the scars to prove it. Could you talk about their journey, physical and emotional? And I really loved... I love the way you frame that right from the beginning where Sam is telling us about what the Long Island Expressway does to her adult psyche. Yeah. So I love the summer. I love writing a summer book um, for the, the reason that um, it's also sensory. You know, it's all you have all those memories associated with summer. And the first scene in this book is Sam leaving the city, going to Long Island and remembering how when she was a child, that was, you know, you kick off your hard shoes and you put on your flip flops and, you know, all the rules go out the window. Um, and since she's had her heart broken and since she's had this trauma, her identity has actually changed from it. Um, she becomes a person who is very hard, very armored, a little bit icy. Um, she has done everything to make sure that she's not going to have her heart broken again. And one of the ways she protects herself is by just not going back to the beach, not going back to the place where she used to be that other person and she used to be free. So she stays in the, in the city. In this book, her mother guilts her into going back to the beach. And it's sort of the beginning of her transformation um, back into herself. Love that. Yeah, like so was that too many words? What do you guys think? No, no. that was perfect. In fact, you could tell by the silence, we wanted more words. We were like, we're like yeah. Annabelle, we're going to have to cut your time short. Oh, that yeah, was, that's, that's all the time we have for Annabelle today. Thank you for more. Is it? Did you hear that tick tock, tick tock? No. <laughs> no, I was leaning forward, really listening and, and remembering what it was like in the back of the station wagon on the long drive to Cape Cod, where every passing mile meant one less rule, one less, you know, thing to do, more freedom. And I was I was right along for it. So, which brings me to the setting for the novel. It's set on the North Fork of Long Island. Am I right? That's right, the North Fork? It's, it's made up Long Island. Okay. So I don't really know where it is. It is a fake. <laughs> I don't want anybody to call me out on the geography. So I no, just- we know. We get it. Same yeah. thing. But it's rendered with such tenderness and specificity, like the cove and the trees and the village itself, that you would think it was very real. Is there a real life inspiration? And if there is, like, how do we get there? <laughs> 
I, it's almost like it's back in your mind. Um, yeah. I grew up in Los Angeles, like you said, um, and I really spent a lot of time as a child at the beach. I, you know, mm. we would go Christmas Day to the beach. And um, I, like all of my childhood memories, I have my sand in my feet in the sand. And um, I think, like my sister has a place in Long Island and the beach there is different. It is, there's those dunes that you go through to get to the ocean. Um, and there's something about those dunes that are even more, you're not just leaving a parking lot to get to the beach. You're, you're walking through something magical mm -hmm. to get there. Um, and I really wanted to write about that. Beautiful. Well, That's you did so and you made us feel like we were there. You know, there are dunes here, and I think I just take that for granted, that you walk yeah. through the dunes to get to the beach. I don't know. No, I would drive. First of all, we had to drive to the beach in Los Angeles, and you would drive down the California incline onto the Pacific Coast Highway, yeah. and you would get to a parking lot, and then the sand would start. Um, yeah. And when I tell you that's about as exciting as anything I can think of, that was a thrill to just to do that. But there's something about the way the beaches are on the East Coast where they're so accessible. I just yeah. love it. It's true. That's very, very true. Well, there is a through line in this plot that has to do with the creative process, something that we think we all probably know a little bit about, and how it affects the characters when their creativity is stunted or suppressed. We can't help but notice that you have an MBA from Wharton and that your first career was in investment banking. So is there something of you in the character of Sam, maybe? And also, what's the takeaway from investment banking? Yeah, could you give us some investment banking advice? Yeah. <laughs> some land you should buy. I got a hot tip. Uh, no, the takeaway from investment banking is I paid off my student loans and got out pretty much the same day. I was like, wow, that was a terrible idea. And I got out of there after a couple of years. Um, I always wanted to write. And so it took me, I didn't publish my first book until I was 37 years old. So it took me a really long time um, to get back to that. And sort of wanting to be creative and being creative my whole life and not knowing how to do that um, and how to support myself was always like a like a like an emotional conflict for me. Mm -hmm. And when I started writing, it was kind of a relief. Mm -hmm. um, but like the that. through line that you mention in the book um, is, is about her father who, Sam's father had a series of very successful paintings 20 years prior. He made a bunch of money, which is why they have a beach house. And he hasn't been able to create anything since. Um, and so the family's in financial trouble. He's a bit of a one hit wonder. And his arc is sort of claim, reclaiming his creativity. The reason that that is funny to me is I had a message a week ago from this wonderful Canadian writer named Maggie North, who said, I just finished your book and it's so amazing how you wrote a metaphor for writing the second novel. Mm. My first reaction was, did you mean to send this to someone else? I'd really <laughs> know what talking about. But of course, what I was doing in my horror and terror at writing the second novel that of course no one's gonna like, um, was I was pouring all of my anxiety about never being able to do it again into her father. Wow. That's where that whole storyline came from. And I never realized it until last week. Amazing. Our I subconscious is so murky and it is. Well, I think is Sam is is sort of to me creatively stunted too, because she's been doing something with human resources, right? What human resources consultant? Yeah. Is a real job. I Googled yeah. it. And then at the end of the book, her whole, she changes her whole life back to what, I don't know, spoilers, but I thought that was just an interesting kind of through line. That's what I was trying to do. This, what I was trying to do in this book is to show or really explore and learn a little bit about how when we're children, we are who we are. And then life happens and we get our hearts broken and just we get harder and we learn to adjust so that we don't get our hearts broken again. And, you know, in the end, we're just left with ourselves. And hopefully we can sort of find our way back to that person that we used to be when, you know, when we were nine years old. Yeah. Well, wow. That's know, beautiful. Speak, speak, oh, sorry, go ahead, Christine. Oh, no, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting too how 
I don't know if this happens for you guys, but I mean, obviously, Annabelle, you just hit on this. So I think it does. But I've started to realize that I try not to write my talk about a new book until like right before it's about to come out because I learned so many things about my book doing interviews for the book. Yeah. yeah. Like people will say things to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I, yes, I meant to do that. Right. I planned that the whole time, you know? Yes. That thread totally I wove delivered. through with great intention. Because I'm a huge planner. That's what I want people to think. <laughs> I planned this whole thing out. Um, but I'm sure you guys feel this way. There's something so vulnerable about writing a book because you're telling a story but you're also sharing so much about yourself that you never intended to share. Oh, yes. Uh, just yes. sort of leads onto the page and you can't take it back. So that is so true. So true. Well, you know, I, I, we talked, oh, we talked about your takeaway from investment banking, but I'm curious, you've, you've written lighthearted essays for Huffington Post and a local newspaper. Plus you've mm -hmm. written young adult novels and you've taught writing. Was all of this training for writing novels like the ones you write? It, it, I guess what I'm asking, in other words, is what pieces of the writing you did before brought you to where you are now, do you think? You know, I think for me, it's just all a confidence game. Okay. Uh, I, I started writing for young adults. And, you know, if you want to talk about vulnerability, when I was writing for young adults, I was really just revealing a lot to readers about what I was like when I was 17. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> Who cares? That was a long time ago. Um, and so I did that. And then I just started writing this column for adults, which for whatever reason was way more successful than my young adult novels. <laughs> and I wrote another one. And then I wrote another one and it turned into a thing. And I sort of got my grown up voice and my oh, confidence wow. to talk about how things are. Not how things used to be, but like, this is what it's like to live in a house, to be married, to be raising children, to be a person in the world. Um, and I did that. I've been writing that column for 13 years, probably. Um, and then COVID hit and I thought, for goodness sakes, like, let's just write this book. Um, oh. And I, it was time, you know, I was, I was 50 years old and I guess I was just ready. I love that. that. Yep. Well, you know, your writing has a deft light touch which is, of course, perfect for romantic comedy. But we all know from experience that easy reading does not translate to easy writing. Would you talk about your writing process? I think you just gave us a hint when you said you didn't plan things out too much. Or am I reading something into it that you didn't mean? Nope. I'm not a planner. Um, I My process is I come up with a little thing. Like, I just, you know... I, I liked, for this book, it was um, the Philadelphia story. I really loved her going oh. home and running into her ex-husband. Remember Catherine Hepburn goes yeah. home? Yes. But I want this young woman to go home, you know, right before she's getting married and run into her old boyfriend and have that ex and explore all that heartbreak. That's basically all I had. And I wrote this particular book 12 times. Oh, my um, gosh. I, well, I feel better. Yes, no, because it, it was so easy. Wrote itself, the whole thing. Um, so it was, you know, I wrote it in first person, third person, you know, back and forth in time, all, all from her perspective, half from his perspective. Wow. And it probably was the fourth draft of writing this novel that I felt who Sam was and I understood who she was. And that's when the writing actually becomes easy and happy. Wow. So that's my process. I just am like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> typing until I feel a thing and I understand. And then I turn into a writer and I write the book. Oh, I love that. I, love do you, I do not recommend. You guys don't need my advice, but <laughs> start doing it this way. So, it, so why are you saying Wyatt is C.K. Dexter Hayes? C.K. Dexter Hayes, is that his name? That's right. That's yeah. right. This is the kind of crap I remember. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say, what did you pull that out of? Like, that was amazing. I'm a, fan, a huge fan of Philadelphia's story. Me too. And the amazing gowns Catherine Hepburn wears in that movie. Yes. And, and do you remember the remake? The, what? the remake of, of Philadelphia's story was High Society with Grace Kelly. I think oh. I saw it, but it it felt dead inside to me. It's, <laughs> it's different, but there's music. Oh. And so what's fun oh. about that one is her ex-husband is Bing Crosby, and he's written a song for her, and the song haunts her. Oh. And it was my starting point for this novel. 
Um, Yeah. The other thing I remember from that is when they talk, she uses the sailing phrase, yar, is that the phrase? Yar, yes. Yes. Well, I've never seen either one, so I'm just gonna I think we need to have a watch party. Yeah, probably at, at Annabelle's house. We're invited. Yeah. Right? Yes, so I have Annabelle, will come visit you. That'll be great. This is so perfect. <laughs> we have um a bunch of comments and questions flooding in for you on the Facebook page. But I just um I wanted to tell you, Anita Armstrong said that she has loved both of your books. And Ellen Benson, obviously, before you answered this, wanted to know where you got your inspiration for putting the anxiety in the character of the father, which I thought was really cool. It's my um, own. Yeah. And I really like this one. Um, Edie Cohen wants to know if summer is your favorite season for writing or reading. Mm, I like to write all the time. Um, I really like to write in the winter. Me too. I really do. I like to, I like to wake up in the dark and it stays dark for a long time. It sort of prolongs the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I like to read all the time, but I love that those cozy days, you know, if there are lights on the Christmas tree, better yet. um, I love writing in winter. Oh, it's great. Well, Annabelle, you have been such an incredible guest and we are so grateful that you spent your time with us tonight. So before we tell you goodbye, can you tell everyone where they can find you online to keep up with your next book and your tour dates and all of that stuff? So I am at AnnabelleMonahan.com. There is a G in Monahan. Um, and all of my tour dates are there. Um, on social media, I'm mostly on Instagram because I forget to go to Facebook all the time, but that's Annabelle Monahan on Instagram. Um, I know there's a button you can press, but it's just, I don't do it. Um, and that's where you can find me. Twitter also. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming. I hope I get to see you in real life in Bedford, maybe. Yeah, I hope so. I'm going to try to figure that out. But thank you. This has just been a total thrill to be with you guys. So thank oh, you. We're so happy. You well, congratulations. What a beautiful yeah. book. Congratulations. Yeah, we're so excited you were here. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, we're excited to get to Megan Miranda. But first, a few quick messages from us. And remember, we have an after show tonight. So be sure to stick around. So as we have mentioned, you've probably heard us say this before, all four of us have new releases this year with my The Paris Daughter and Patty's The Secret Book of Flora Lee already out and Christie's The Summer of Songbirds coming in just 13 days. Not that you were counting. Christy, did you know what's out in 13 days? You know, you probably didn't. You probably weren't aware. It's just slipped my mind. I'm barely thinking about it. So. I, I assumed. I assumed. Yeah. yeah. No, there's no, nothing stressful about the lead up mm-hmm. to a publication. And of course, Mary Kay's latest Bright Lights Big Christmas is coming in September. And by the way, I just read both of these books this past weekend, and they are so so good. So good. I cannot oh, wait for okay. everyone to get to read them. Oh my gosh, I'm so yeah. excited. She forgot to say she was trapped in an airport with no with no escape, and that's the only reason. Do you <laughs> know like- that I was like, no, I was so excited because I had finished Christie's, but I was like, I'm never going to get to Mary Kay's book because like, I'm going to go back home and life's going to get in the way. And then I had a delay, and I was upset for like five minutes, and then I was like, oh, but I think I'm going to have time to read this entire oh. book. And I did. I read the entire book. It was so awesome. good. Thank you. <laughs> it was the best thing about the flight delay, but anyhow, to celebrate these four new releases, we have some simply amazing events coming up, which means that you can catch us live as a group multiple times this year. So we have already been in Columbus, Ohio, Charleston, and Huntsville, Alabama together. And coming up, we will be in Tampa, Florida on July 20th at Oxford Exchange for Christie's launch. Then in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer brunch fundraiser for earlier.org and last but not least in Darien, Connecticut on October 4th for MKA's launch. So make sure you are signed up for our friends in fiction newsletter and for our individual newsletter so that you are the first to know more. And you've been listening to our writer's block podcast, right? It drops every Friday on all major podcasting platforms. We'll always post a link to the newest episode on the friends and fiction Facebook page and on our Instagram feed. On our most recent episode out now, Ron and I talked to Curtis Sittenfeld about her hit novel, Romantic Comedy. Coming this Friday, Ron and Meg will be talking to Christine Pride and Joe Piazza about You Were Always Mine. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Which you will. So, obviously. 
Guaranteed. <laughs> Money back. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time for our next guest, Megan Miranda. Megan is the New York Times bestselling author of several novels, including All the Missing Girls, The Perfect Stranger, The Girl from Widow Hills, and Such a Quiet Place. Her novel, The Last House Guest, was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. She has written several books for young adults. She grew up in New Jersey, graduated from MIT. God, we have a lot of brainiacs here tonight. And she now lives in North Carolina with her husband and two children. Her new novel, The Only Survivors, was just released in April. Alan, can you bring Megan on, please? I didn't say Megan, can you bring Alan on? Hey, Megan. Hi, Megan. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is such a thrill for me. I know like we were just meeting, but I feel like I've known you all through your book and through social media for so long. So it's such so exciting for me. We're excited too. We're so glad that you're here. And I'm so glad to know that we're like in the same state. It's great. It feels like you know, we're pretty close, even though we're really not that close together, but we're kind of close together. <laughs> we are. We are. Carolina. Well, yes. Yes. Well, Megan, this um, was an incredible book. The Only Survivors follows a group of nine high school students who are the survivors of a deadly bus, bus crash on their way home from a school service trip who pledged to come back together each year to a house on the Outer Banks to check on each other. But by the time they meet up on the 10th anniversary of the crash, two of their surviving nine have died and something just seems off. A storm is brewing, a classmate disappears from the house, and with weather raging outside and no way to leave, the friends will make good on the promise they made all those years ago to do whatever they have to do to keep each other safe. Won't they? <laughs> so there's a little bit about um, so there's Maybe. a little bit about what this book is about. But can you tell us a little more and then tell us what it's really about? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that summary. I feel like that was perfect and really captured the essence okay. of what this book is about. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's about this group of like former classmates who, when they were um, seniors in high school, they were on a class service trip in the Tennessee mountains and their vans went off the road and they ended up in a ravine with a raging river and it took them seven hours to escape. And at that point there were only nine of them left. And the book is starts 10 years later and there are seven remaining at this point. And while it is a story about what happened then and the mystery of what's happening now, for me, it was really the story of about how nine people can have this really traumatic event happen to all of them. And yet all of them have completely different reactions to it, different responses. And it really became about who they became because of this, um, whether they tried to leave it behind whether it really impacted the people they became and the choices they made from then on. Um, so really, I was most interested in the heart of the story about like these characters and what happens to them because they weren't friends before. They were not family. They were not friends. They were really only together because of this one traumatic event that has bonded them for so long. Um, but one of the things I love writing about is how the past impacts the present. Mm -hmm. And I feel like all of my books can be summed up with like the phrase, the past returns. And this is very much in line with what happened in this book. So the 10 year anniversary is happening. There's whispers about like, is the truth getting out or not? You know, our numbers are down to seven. Another one of us has just gone missing. What's going on here? Wow. Ooh, yeah, what is going on here? <laughs> So Megan, we love talking about origin stories here on Friends in Fiction. And I understand that the origin story for this book is pretty fantastic. Can you, I understand there was a, a innocent family vacation that somehow led to this twisty engrossing novel. <laughs> yes, I always feel bad because my husband always jokes like my brand is to take like beautiful, lovely places <laughs> that we love and then turn them dark and creepy. And basically in this book, I did that with the beach and also took this lovely family vacation and was like, there's a dark, creepy story hidden underneath <laughs> this. So um, we, yeah, so we were on um, a family vacation visiting my in-laws in Puerto Rico. And I have two teenagers and my teenage daughter and my husband were taking a walk on the beach the first morning and a phone washed up at their feet in the surf, which is like really weird to begin with. Um, they brought it back to our condo and they were like, wow, we found this. It was in one of those protective cases, but it was kind of cracked and coated in water and sand. And they were like, 
let's see if we can like turn it on and find out who the owner is. I don't know if it's because I read too many thrillers or I write them, but immediately I was like, this is a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> this is obviously yes. evidence of a crime, right? Like, we have now brought it back to our condo. Mm -hmm. This is how, and my daughter was like, why do you think that way? And I was like, don't, doesn't everyone think this way? Like, obviously, this is what we have done. So they ignored me. They were like, why is our mother like this? She left it out in the sun took it out of the case. We went about our day. I came back and she was the first one back to the condo and was like, I brought that phone inside and I turned it on, charged it. It works. And there's no passcode screen, which I was like, oh, so many God. red flags have happened in this. Like now <laughs> this was evidence of a crime. We've turned it on. And now whoever was involved can track us. It kind of took over like the family vacation. It had a happy ending. They track down the owner who had lost it two weeks earlier wow. on a jet ski in the ocean and somehow this phone survived and you know we we sent it back to them happily ever after but in the back of my mind I was like what if what if what if what if what if and I couldn't let it go to the point where I got back home and I was like no I'm gonna have to write it this alternate series of events yeah. and it became a totally different story but I started thinking about how could a group of people who both lost and found a phone be connected? And it's mm -hmm. a small, small subplot. Um, it's like, it's in chapter two, that scene, like it really is there. A phone washes up at the main character's feet and it takes a totally different dark and twisted turn from there. Um, but it's probably the only time that'll ever happen to me where like a plot point comes to me on vacation um, and then I can write about it. Yeah, <laughs> I've, awesome. I've had that. I've had that happen. I mean, most specifically recently with, working on our old house when I was writing the home records. Um, are there any other times in your writing career that you felt like you've been handing handed a sign like that? Never, never. Ooh. I feel like I always have to go dig for them. And let's like one idea sits in my brain for like a year and then it merges with another idea that's been sitting there for yeah. two yeah. years and suddenly it yeah. becomes a story. Yes. It's Does never happened to me. Does that ever happen in the shower? That's where all the good things come in, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> or the middle of the night where I'm taking out my phone, like leaving myself a note that makes no sense in the morning. Right, when I, I can't interpret it. it. Exactly. That's a garbled, misspelled message that was probably the best plot you've ever thought of. Now. Ever. Yes. yes. I have That's dreams. a genius moment. Yeah, and in the middle of the night, I'm like, this is brilliant. I just dreamed this whole gorgeous novel. And then I'll wake up and I'm like, that is ridiculous gibberish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's only happened to me once. I dream I dreamt a novel practically whole and I did it. I wrote it. It was really? the life intended by 2014. No way. Yes. Yes. Every, yes. Like 75% of that, 75% of that novel I woke up with like it was in my head and it's about a dream, which is super weird. But anyhow, so it's not a show about me. Magic. Total magic. So Megan, yeah. like our earlier guest, Annabelle, I know you started out your career writing young adult fiction. And of course, in this book, we see this group of high schoolers and how these pivotal life moments affect them all the way into adulthood, which is something I really like writing about too, how the past impacts the present. So can you tell us how your experience writing YA affected your writing of this novel? And also, what is it about that young adult time of life that intrigues you? Yes, definitely. So I, my first six books were young adult fiction. They were all suspense, but I, I was drawn to telling these stories about these big things that happen in our youth or our teen years and how that impacts the people we become. And when I started writing, I had, I, my career right beforehand was I was a high school science teacher oh. and I was reading a lot of young adult fiction. And I think I was kind of on the other side of the desk where, you know, this, this expanse of time was between us, but I could kind of see like this universal experience at the heart. Like we were in different places. We were in different moments in time, but I felt like there was something really universal about this, you know, young adult experience and that coming of age elements. And I was really drawn to writing stories um, centered around these characters discovering who they were and figuring out their place in the world. And that's not to say that doesn't happen in adult stories at all, because I think it does. Um, but that's kind of where I started writing. And I do think it was the experience of writing about these characters who were having these huge things happen to them because they were thrillers who were like 17 years old. And the book finishes and I would put it aside and think, okay, 
they're going on with their life. Everything's fine. And then years later, I would be like, are they fine? Like, how are they doing? (laughs) You know, like, did this impact who they became? Did they try to leave the past behind? Did they embrace it? Um, And that kind of kicked off a lot of my ideas for my adult books. And my first book for adults, All the Missing Girls, was about what happened when these characters were 18. Suddenly, it's 10 years later, and it's all coming back. And I, I feel like it's something at a hallmark, a hallmark of a lot of the books I write. And really specifically this last one, I think I had the opportunity to kind of write those scenes when they were teens and then show them as adults as well, which is kind of fun to be able to to go back and do both of those. Um, but it's just something that is always on my mind, like these different facets of who people are and who they were. And I think, you know, when you're writing a mystery or thriller, like it's so interesting to also unwind the mysteries inside the characters and the people. So true. That's you're completely so right. Cool. Yeah. Did your, do your, any of your former students have ever come back to you and said, Hey, Miss Miranda, how come you wrote my, my story? <laughs> no, thankfully. No, no. And I, you know, I, I only taught for about two and a half years and then I had, kids of my own. And it's so like, I started writing when they were one and three, and now they are 15 and 17. And that's what's wild to me is like, they're suddenly the age of these characters that I was writing and they're reading about them like, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so interesting, the blend of and what and it's what's hard to write about, I think, and we were talking about it earlier. Do you go back and forth in time? Do you have flashbacks? Because Anything like the plot of this novel, what they're going through now has to be affected by something that they already went through. And weaving that together, I think, is no easy feat. But I want to talk a little bit about survivor guilt. So two of my novels, I've I've addressed that, what I call surviving the surviving, right? How survivor guilt affects us, how it impacts the rest of our lives, how it affects relationships, how we shut ourselves off from things. You have a choice to become bitter or move on. And I feel like, of course, this is a huge theme in The Only Survivors. So without any spoilers, can you tell us how each of these characters are affected very differently by just the fact that they survived? Yes. Um, it's something I'm I'm really fascinated about as well. And yeah, I, I feel like it's, and the thing I feel is very interesting too, in all different types of books and all different types of characters is every character is going to react to it differently. And so they've all had this shared experience and yet they react to it very differently. So some of these characters, it's definitely impacted, first of all, the careers that they have gone into. Um, one of the characters, Brody, has become an EMT. He wants to prepare himself to be able to save people. Um, Grace is a trauma therapist. Um, I think, you know, she's trying to help see people through. And so you can kind of see it in some of their careers. Um, one of the characters, Amaya, has not left the area where this accident has occurred. Um, And she's kind of trying to bring more resources to the area so that something like this could not happen again. And then there's other characters who act like this has never happened and have put it completely out of their mind and maybe have seen like characters who, you know, when you see them in the past, they didn't seem like this type of person and have become suddenly somebody who was very... Um, willing to take risks and because the worst has already happened to them. Um, And so it was kind of interesting to follow these different threads through each different character. Um, And it it kind of becomes a clash when they're all brought back together because they're a reminder to each other of what happened, even if some of them are trying to move past it. And it, I mean, in real life, it's true. You know, a bunch of people go through something horrible or even only two people And the way they choose to deal with it in body, mind, and spirit are completely different. And it makes for a fascinating novel, my friend. Way to go. 
Yeah. There's like so many other things I want to ask you. So I'm like narrowing down in my head, but one of the things that I like spend a lot of time thinking about is this tiny decisions that we make that end up changing our entire life. Like the party that I almost wasn't going to go to. And I met my husband and um, the writing contest I wasn't going to enter. And that's how I got my first book deal. And like, it crosses my mind when I'm doing really simple things, like I'm picking a flight time or like a GPS route, or like, I'm always like writing the story of, you know, how it's going to go. And there's so many of the decisions, um, like these high schoolers choosing their bus seats are seemingly, you know, automatic and most certainly random, but the only survivors really shows that they can mean everything. So the survivors in this novel start to realize that something as simple as that bus seat that they chose dictated whether they lived or died. And I feel like there's a message here about either the randomness of life or the role of fate, or maybe both. So what do you want readers Mm -hmm. to about in regards to those little choices while they're reading? Great question. Oh, that's such a great question. And, you know, there are things I was thinking about a lot when I was writing, and I think there are things that Cassidy, the narrator, was thinking about a lot because you're right, like characters change seats and suddenly their fate changed because of it. Um, Some characters see that and some don't. Some think it was an action they took or didn't take. And I think it's only when they all come together that you're able to kind of see the collection of things, like no one decision dictated everything. It was sort of everyone coming together. And and in that same way that there's shared blame, there's also like shared responsibility and shared, like for them, it was kind of the worst day of their lives, but they also survived and were able to go to those like deep instincts in them as well. And when I'm writing a thriller and I'm thinking about place or anything, I'm, I'm always thinking like, this place could be the most beautiful place or it could be the most terrifying place. And I think that also is the same with like how they see an event in their past. Like you can see all the horrible things about it, or you can see the good that we did in it. And I think those are the questions I was thinking about when I was writing the book. They're like, I I see themes as like a question to explore and they don't necessarily have an answer, but the characters are working their way through it. And I love that you asked that because I feel like, Every that's the theme, and that's the question every character is working their way through in the story. And I don't necessarily have an answer, but it was definitely no. About that's it. great. I think that was the perfect answer. I think that's a perfect answer. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say um, that our friend Hank Philippi Ryan is watching, and she says that she loves everyone, all of us, and we love, we you, love too. you too. Love you. Yes. <laughs> okay, and very quickly before we let you go, we have a lot of questions coming in for you, Megan. So if you have time, feel free to go answer some of them yeah. on the Facebook page. Oh, but yeah. um, I love this one, Mary Vass. Quest says, does writing YA keep you young or does it make you feel old? I love that. <laughs> Both, depending on the time, I think, because I like you are, you're going back to that like time in your life. Like I could read a YA book. I read two pages and I'm like, I'm right back yeah. there. Like I'm transported, yeah. you know, yeah. but then I'll like read characters. I'll be writing them. And I was like, oh, I'm the parent in this book now. <laughs> right. like, I'm removed by a generation from the characters I'm writing about. So it, it depends on the day, I think. Yeah. That's, That's great. a great That's answer. Well, Megan, before we let you go, can you tell us where our viewers can find you on the road and online in the coming weeks? Yes. Yeah, so um, my website, meganmiranda.com, is updated usually with um, the events I'm doing. I have a couple later this summer and fall, um, which will be posted there soon. And then um, on social media, I'm most active on Instagram. I love Instagram. Um, Megan L. Miranda there. And I'm author Megan Miranda on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. You have been such a great guest. I feel like we could have, gosh, we could have talked to you and Annabelle all night, but we have to let you go. So thank you so much. much This was so fun. I love chatting with you all. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Well, what an evening, but it is not over yet. We will be back in just a minute welcoming Mary Huddleston and Asher Paul on the after show in just a moment. You're not going to want to miss them, so do not move from your seat. And don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube, and we'll be back next week to, to welcome Marie Bostwick and Tara Shelton Harris. And we'll have such a fun episode in store for you then, and we can't wait. So we'll see you next week, but first, we'll see you in about 30 seconds in the after show. How fun was that? That was fun. They were great. I mean, talk about two great guests, right? I love hearing where these things come from for them. 
Yeah, like something I, none of us would make into a story. I love it. Yeah. When right. he was talking about, you know, and Patty, you were talking about it too, survivor's guilt, and they're all on this van. And and I thought, this, how many submersible submarine stories I was thinking are we, the same thing. we gonna have coming out in the next couple of years? Yeah. yeah. Mary Kay, there was an article about a father and son who were supposed to be on it yeah. and decided it didn't sound safe enough. And wow. the other father and son got their spot. Yeah. So wow. it's that same. Yes. Yes. That, there's like twists of fate. Well, it's like um, uh, George, Edith and Cornelia Vanderbilt were supposed to be on the Titanic. And Edith got this like weird wow. feeling, you know, that she just didn't want to be on that boat. And they switched like, and, and George was mad because, you know, it was like the thing, right? Like everyone yeah. that was, everyone was going to be on that boat. And you know, life. two of the Telfair sisters were supposed to be on the Pulaski. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And well, one Telfair sister said, I just have a terrible feeling about it. We're oh. not going. I mean, would we have the Telfair Museum? Would we have half of what we have? I mean, that, those little, that's why I love that question, Christy, just that. Well, that's what I makes have a bad feeling more. about most things. So it's hard. <laughs> I have a bad feeling about going to public. So then I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about cleaning my house. That's really why I don't do it. Yeah. The laundry, I have a really bad feeling about this. That's how I feel laundry. about working out. Like yeah. I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> I could yeah. get really could hurt get today. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we have more in store <laughs> and we are so excited to get started. So let's introduce Marion Asher. MKA, that's you, girl. <laughs> I'm waiting for Alan to bring them on. I'm like, what's going on? Why doesn't Alan bring them on? <laughs> Mary Huddleston is the co-founder and creative director of Please Be Seated, the premier, premier event rental company in Nashville, Tennessee. Mary and her husband started the business in 2014 and now have more than 30 employees servicing events nationwide. In 2018, Mary established Mrs. Southern Social, a lifestyle platform focused on modern entertaining at home, and she has been featured in Southern Living, Southern Lady, Style Blueprint, and N Focus magazine. Asher Fogel-Paul is a human interest and entertainment journalist. Her work has been published in Marie Claire, Cosmo, Esquire, and many other places. She has an MS in magazine journalism from Columbia University and a BA in English from Texas Christian University. She lives in New York City with her husband and four, four kids. Mary and Asher's new novel, Piece of Cake, was just released on June 20th. All right, Alan, can you bring Mary and Asher on, please? Hi, ladies. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. We're so excited to talk to you about this fabulous, fun, charming, wonderful novel. So thanks for being here. Gosh, thank, thank you, you for right. having us. Well, so to kick us off, ladies, um, like I said, Piece of Cake is just, it's the perfect like summary novel that we hope everyone's reading right now. So Mary, can you tell us what it's about? And then Asher, can you tell us what it's really about? <laughs> I feel like we should flip that if that's okay with y'all. Flip it. Flip it. So that's what I meant to say. Asher, can you tell us what it's about? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then Mary, can you tell us what it's really about? <laughs> Um, I mean, Piece of Cake is about the spoiler is about the villain from our first book, who Claire, who you find out really made a some bad choices and is in Nashville rebuilding her life and going to save the magazine that she works for, which is a beloved Southern Weddings magazine. And she comes with an idea to do a documentary series. And of course, her boss brings in an influencer who immediately ticks her off. And so it's kind of just about their journey and the crazy weddings that they go to and ultimately really her kind of having to reckon with who she is and who she wants to be. So anyway, Mary can give you the fun version of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I joke, the reason I switched that question is because I joke that when I describe Asher and I's relationship that we're a bit of a mullet business in the front party in the back and Asher <laughs> this is much fun but she certainly is the more gifted writer um no so this book is a lot of fun uh just like the first novel uh really the inspiration comes from all of the crazy weddings uh that 
I experienced and then some of the crazy antics that Asher covered in her days as a celebrity journalist. Um, and so, you know, but what what it boils down to really is the art of not being canceled. Um, I think right now, and especially when we wrote this book, um, you know, everyone was getting canceled for anything that you did. And obviously there are some things that are worth being canceled about, um, but others, you know, we both have young children. And so our main character makes a big mistake, not only a mistake, she makes a horrible choice. And this book is about how she doesn't let that define the rest of her life. Um, and she really has to come back through a lot, but it's obviously a comedy on top of that. So um, that's the underlying message, but it's a lot of fun. And I joke that Nashville is the gift that keeps on giving. Our bachelorette scene is insane. Um, we're a bit like Bourbon Street at the moment. We're trying to figure that out. So a lot of the antics in the book are true to life, unfortunately. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's a lot of that in Savannah too. Um, well, Asher, I, like you, began my career in the journalism world. What made you decide to take the leap into novel writing? Honestly, it was kind of always something I wanted to do. Um, I, I majored in English, like many of y'all probably, and sculpture. And my parents were like, so how are you going to make money? <laughs> mm. yep. sculpture and books mm. and um and so then I went into journalism because honestly Mary was a broadcast major and I was like that seems interesting and so I started working for the campus newspaper and got a little hooked at like honestly the immediate gratification um and getting to tell real people's stories so it was like I feel like I kind of books were always there and kind of always a dream but then it was a bit of a roundabout way of of getting there so, so you all knew each other in school oh we, we lived together the first book actually starts um, based on some some fat. I mean, our I'll just say this: our books are inspired by our lives. I can't give away any secrets. They're inspired, but we share a lot of the similar stories, and we were there um, together. And so it's been really neat that our you know as we've gone separate ways, but this has brought us back together, and it's been so fun. Love that. Love that. Oh, that's awesome. Now, uh, you mentioned that your experiences as a wedding planner and just living in Nashville in general influenced the writing of the novel. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm just kind of curious about where the genesis of the ideas came from. I think this is really Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Um, well, I was a wedding planner, you know, so many years. I'm not going to tell you how many years I'd been doing it. That'll give away my age. Um, but forever, <laughs> back before everybody really was, before wedding planning really was a thing. And I was working in Dallas at the time. I started in Dallas, ended up in Nashville. And we did multi-million dollar weddings over the top, like where Earth, Wind, and Fire would perform. And Earth and Wind <laughs> don't get along and have to have separate dressing rooms. And Earth and Wind don't <laughs> It's a real thing. I still think to this day they don't get along. But anyways, I had all these crazy stories and I would tell them to my friends and they were like, there is no way that that happened. There is no way that the bubble dancer that even existed was dancing in a bubble on a lake at a client's million dollar wedding and the wind blew her into the shrubbery and we had to beat her out with sticks. Like, you're like, that <laughs> and you're like, but it does. And so I was telling Asher these stories and she was like, we have to make this a book. But we decided with book one and book two, it didn't need to be a tell-all. It needed to be a bit like the Devil Wears Prada, Crazy Rich Asians. And so that is the genesis of the book. She took my crazy stories um, and turned it into a novel. <laughs> and then Nashville was just, then it made sense. You know, it was another city I knew well, and it's booming, and the wedding scene is huge. Content is there, yeah. all the things. Yeah, that's awesome. So before I ask this question, Asher, I just have been having these flashes of writing a novel with my college roommate. And thinking, <laughs> like, what would that even, we're still best of friends and I love her. Kathy met her, Mary Kay met her the other night. Her name is Beth, but oh my gosh, like it would be, I, I, the, the content, it, you have me on a whole tangent with the college roommate's <laughs> writing. But um, Asher, your protagonist, Claire, is a magazine journalist, and the magazine is one issue away from folding. Tell me how you used your past experience in that. Was there ever a moment you were terrified that was going to happen? Was it always on the table? Like, t talk to us about that. I mean, I feel like journalism is, I feel like magazines are never going to go away. People love them. It's, I mean, it's like people saying books are dead, and now we have today. Um, but 
I feel like every, I mean, I've worked at so many magazines that either folded or did layoffs or it was yeah. around layoffs or it was like, I mean, I went to grad school and I feel like my magazine heroes were all like, well, the internet's going to really mess things up for us. I'm like, <laughs> I should probably figure that out. Um, <laughs> so it's, it was always kind of there, but honestly, most of the stories in the book were that I felt like I love magazines and there's a bit of just like the desire to save them and, mm-hmm. and support them and yeah. the, the people who work in them and tell stories in them. And um, it's just a beautiful way of telling stories to me. And so I wanted to kind of like incorporate that in the book, but also ultimately like you get to just in the same way a wedding planner does as a journalist, like you just get to sit there and be like, so what's happening? Like everybody just yeah. tells you things and they tell yeah. you the craziest things and they tell you the deepest things and the, wildest things and you just get to observe it all with a tape recorder and so I kind of loved having that lens on this world because you get to be a little bit more of an impartial observer like in our first book she was the hero and she had to kind of constantly be getting engaged and in this book she's having to kind of like constantly fight that of like I could intervene I could just watch this train wreck happen (laughs) and also just kind of a fun little way of of doing it but I love that you can take that experience and weave it and for us to enjoy, not just for you to enjoy. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. It's so true, though. I, I remember it, I went to journalism school, and I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be really scary and nerve-wracking, and then learning, like, people really like to talk about themselves. And if you will just be, like, a little quiet, they will tell you things that you're like, you shouldn't be saying that to me. That's <laughs> so true. No. So no. true. Like, like we're on the record. Should I tell you? I'm writing. I'm writing this. Like, do you, are you sure you want to say this? There's a recorder. Um, yeah, Y'all, ladies, the thing you see is a wedding planner and that you hear and that your clients think oh, that they yes. can tell you. It's astonishing. <laughs> it, the things that I have done for brides, I can't, I mean, it's, it's this is a like a G-rated program. I can't tell oh, you. No. So, but it is, it's like whether through, you know, you're writing it for a magazine story or they're living it, like these yeah. intimate moments of their lives, people just forget. Like, you know, we, we have ears and we have memories that we can remember what you're telling <laughs> us. And we might turn it into a book one day. There you go. Right. Little do you know. Lightly veiled, but not enough. Yeah. That, <laughs> well, ladies, we I think all, I think I will speak for all of us when I say that we're just really fascinated by co-authors. Um, it's just it's such an interesting concept. Three of us are interested in it. One of us <laughs> is not interested in it. We won't we won't mention any names on this show. Um, but but some people have probably heard us discuss this before. <laughs> but so I, I'm not going to assign these questions to either of you. I'm going to let you pick since I like picked wrong last time. So what of you are just kidding. Will you guys tell us how you decided to write together? And then can you just give us like, what's the day to day? Like what, it, what does yeah. it look like when you are actually sitting down to write a book together? Like, how does that go? <laughs> I'll, I'll give the quick answer and then Asher can elaborate. You know, I was a broadcast journalism major. So I, th- I do think there's a very big difference between broadcast news and print news. And I'm getting, I will get to a point here. And I think that our writing style kind of works that way. I am very animated. I will give you the, the very, just kind of like the, the 30 second pitch. And then Asher will take that and give you the full article. And so we worked well together. And I we get this question a lot because I guess it's really hard for some people. I think we've been very fortunate because we're so different. Yeah. It it's worked. So yeah. Interesting. I think I think it's very much I mean also we wrote both books. We we sold the books in summer 2020. So the entire ah. process was pretty much all remote. Which was not, I think, other than like the very beginning ideas, we we never got to write in the same place really. And so I think it's been helpful that we have a bit of a ping pong um, mm-hmm. instead of sitting down and being like, let's just type this out together, which I think there are some collaborators who do that. We'll sit in a room and just kind of kick it around. Mm-hmm. We, I think, have been able to kind of play off our strengths and be like, okay, Mary will give me a crazy story and I'll come up with some structure or I'll be like, we've got the character has to do this and we need to get here. I need you to give me a gorgeous wedding detail or we need a terrible, terrible date. And I know you can make a really funny one and we need to end up at this point. And so I think it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a back and forth and Mary will read it and be like, this is not funny. (laughs) 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 So I think I'll be like, we need to like have some more meat to this. So it's been a good, it's been a good pairing in that, in that way. 
Well, it, it turns out a beautiful finished product. So whatever y'all are doing works and I hope that you keep doing it. So um, we want to thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. I know it's a really busy time of year and you have a lot going on with your family. So thank you for being here. It was so great to see you. And um, to all of you out there, please do not forget to pick up your copy of Piece of Cake. It is a charming and so fun story and you're you're really, really going to love it. As always, we are deeply grateful your support of the show, of our books, of our guests and their books, and most of all of us. So thank you for being with us and we will see you next week. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.